This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the lives of formerly enslaved African Americans following emancipation, including the important roles of religious and educational institutions in newly freed African American communities. This is taught by Virginia Commonwealth University professor Nicole Myers Turner. All right, so. Um Today, um, we're going to be talking about the meaning of freedom. And I wanted to capture our sort of earlier discussions about the meaning of freedom when we thought about free communities, free black folks in the North and in the South, and how we kind of came up with this uh, way of representing freedom as freedom with a line through it, not quite um, freedom to freedom, right? This question of freedom and what did it mean? And so for today, um, we're going to be talking about what did freedom mean and in in particular, when we think about what did freedom mean to the free people, right? Um, and in 18, January of 1865, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton um, and Union General, General William Sherman uh, had a meeting with 20 preachers in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, they were uh, preachers, pastors, lay church leaders, um, and they wanted to find out from these preachers, basically, what is it that uh, free people wanted from freedom, what did they expect, and particularly wanted to know what did they expect in the aftermath of the Emancipation Proclamation. And the group of 20 people um, who was ostensibly re- representative of free black folks in the, in the community selected one person, Garrison Frazier, uh, a 67-year-old man, um, to be the re- representative of the community, right, and to speak for them. And so uh, General Sherman asked them, or asked him, basically, what did he understand freedom to mean, especially in light of the Emancipation Proclamation? And he said, basically, taking us from under the yoke of bondage and placing us where we could reap the fruit of our labor, take care of ourselves, and assist the government in maintaining our freedom, right? And so you can start to hear some of the language from the Emancipation Proclamation, right? And sort of assisting the government in maintaining our freedom. So where he talked about, um, you know, sort of having the... Um, the people who were emancipated served in the military, go to work, um, and do that diligently. He's reflecting that. But he's also reflecting, you know, the ability to, to reap the fruits of their labor. So they're going to get the benefit of their labor, right? The uh, uh, secretary and the general asked some other questions like, could black people take care of themselves? Yes, they could. Um, what did they need? Land. Did they want to live among white people? Garrison, some did, but Garrison Frazier did not. So in this discussion, we can start to see what it is that free people wanted from their lives, even as it's sort of couched in this um, sort of governmental exploration of what was freedom going to mean for the free people. They were already starting to assert what it is that they wanted freedom to mean, what they wanted freedom to be. Um, And so I'm saying that this is building on our conversations of freedom and free black life and how precarious it was. We're moving into a moment where freedom could actually mean something more, right? Um, And so we're going to start to think about, well, what did that freedom mean when we think about it from the perspectives of the freed people? One of the other themes that we're sort of um, connecting into from the earlier part of the term has to do with this question of, sort of how do black people appear on the landscape of, of, of the United States, right? And we started at the very beginning of the term talking about whether or not black people's experience in the United States is something about black people and, and identity formation, or if it's something about sort of pushing the nation to, as people have said, live out, the, live out the true meaning of its creed, right? So we're going to be thinking about this question of whether or not free people were, were 
pushing the meaning of what this nation was supposed to be and what its founding documents sort of uh, claimed for it. And in the process of doing that, we'll start to see how it is that um, when people talk about, when historians write about emancipation and this moment of reconstruction, that um, sometimes the question is framed the way that Sherman and uh, Stanton framed it, which is basically what can the free people do for the country? And then there's this question of, well, what did the free people want for themselves? And um, when we think about the sort of longer process, which we'll talk about over the remaining weeks about Reconstruction and what happened, a lot of times what it is that free people wanted from them, for themselves gets subsumed or, or crowded out by the question of what could they do for the nation. And I'm hoping that today we can kind of keep both of those questions in sort of in balance here, to think about the relationship of free people to the nation and sort of this project of building, but also, and probably more prominently, what it is that free people wanted for themselves. Um, and so one of the ways that we're going to get it, or a couple of ways we're going to get at that, is by thinking about these first sites of freedom, right? So the first places where um, pe- free people um, lived, where they went to, uh, basically these, contra- they were called contraband camps, and I'll get into the sort of language and why. Um, but then really spending a majority of our time thinking about how free people define freedom in its many aspects of their lives. Um, but I wanted to start out with um, some of the, what I call the sort of the first flat phalanx of freedom, right? The first people on the sort of uh, landscape of freedom. Um, and that's the black soldiers, right? And when we think about uh, sort of black soldiers, um, many of them um, were free black men who enlisted um, to support the union effort. Uh, some of them were self-emancipating men who liberated themselves from slavery and went and joined the Union ranks. Um, but there was a real debate about whether or not f- enslaved men, free men, free black men should support the war effort. And you can think about reasons why. If you think about what the experience of uh, African people was in the American Revolution, for example, right? And sort of thinking about, well, what happened after the American Revolution? Did they realize the freedom that the American Revolution promised? No, right? Um, that's why we have that little graphic about freedom with the line through. It's like they had freedom, but it wasn't full freedom. It wasn't a meaningful freedom or a complete freedom. So there was a real debate, right, about whether or not the soldier, black men should f- support the war effort. But um, eventually they do, right? And they enlist, right? They enlist um, after the Emancipation Proclamation because it becomes a war measure, right, a war measure to, um, to enlist black men to support the Union effort, but they do it anyway, believing that they could again, demonstrate their commitment to the union, commitment to the principles of the nation, uh, and that that would reflect well on African people, that they were participating in this process. Um, Some refused, right? Some black men refused to enlist, and others were impressed and forced into the army, and even even on the union side, right? So it wasn't all uh, uh, soldiers who participated were sort of um, ready to sort of jump in for the uh, war effort, but many did. And in fact, they made up about 10% of the uh, Union Army uh, and about 25% of the Union Navy. So um, there was a significant buy-in uh, for black soldiers. And when they participated in the war, they um, oftentimes, um, in terms of leadership, didn't get very competent leadership because they were sort of uh, laboring under the systems of racism and oppression that sort of kept them from getting the primary um, sort of leaders. And they were sometimes denied the ability to hold um, sort of commissioned positions um, as leaders. 
Um, but eventually they were allowed to, to gain some commissions. Um, so they had some leadership role. They were also oftentimes placed at the forefront, um, sometimes called like cannon fodder, right? So to put in the front lines of different battles. Uh, and so they suffered some of the most, the greatest number of casualties uh, as a result of their service. Um, and so one example of, uh, well, I say they suffered casualties because of them being placed on the front lines, but also that the sort of tenor of the war was so um, um, charged at, po- at points that they would uh, sort of experience uh, extreme violence because they were free black men or free black men, but they were viewed as being sort of uh, uh, runaway slaves or something like that, right? So at Port, Port, Phil, uh, Fort Pillow in uh, Tennessee, um, there were, uh, you know, sort of a, a group of uh, black soldiers, um, and it basically ends up as a massacre of Union troops who were trying to surrender. So for black soldiers, they were oftentimes on the sort of front lines, and so that's what happened at Fort Pillow uh, in Tennessee, where they were basically holed up in a, um, in a fort, and they... Um, the Union soldiers were trying to escape. And uh, when they tried to escape from the fort, um, they believed that there was going to be sort of transport waiting for them. And it turned out that there wasn't. And so as they're sort of trying to escape and trying to surrender, um, they were basically massacred and shot as they were fleeing from the, from the fort. Uh, and a similar situation happened in the Battle of the Crater where there were uh, black soldiers who were on the front phalanx of the Union effort um, and as they sort of rushed into what was a sort of blown up um, uh, sort of mine area, um, they were uh, massacred as the Confederate soldiers were screaming or shouting, no quarter, right, no quarter, that they would not be allowed to surrender, that they would only, the only um, sort of uh, end that they could have would be death, right? Uh, and so we can f- see how black soldiers were leading the um, cause of the war by sort of articulating how they um, could be supportive of the Union. We can see how they were um, sort of thinking through uh, and struggling under some of the limitations, including being denied pay. And that was something that happened relatively early on. They were denied pay, and some of them refused to be paid until they were going to get paid the same amount as white soldiers were being paid, um, the same compensation in terms of uh, wages as well as um, sort of clothing and things like that. Um, but the other piece of what they did in terms of their leadership in the war effort was in terms of helping to secure freedoms for their families. Now, um, I'll talk in a minute about the contraband camps and how enslaved people were sort of liberating themselves, but um, one of the things that also happened for the men who served in the military, they were also able to gain freedom for their, for their wives and for their children, right? And so um, they, sort of, they were able to figure out that um, by serving in the Union, they could also gain freedom for their families and uh, children. But we also know that um, when it comes to pursuing freedom, it's not always, um, sometimes it's viewed as a sort of individual, you know, sort of moment. And we've talked about that where people sort of make choices for themselves. Um, but then there are also moments where people make choices for their families and for their communities. And so um, we start to think about uh, some of the first freedoms uh, and the places where um, enslaved people started to find their first freedoms. It was in the contraband camps. It was in these places where enslaved people ran to the Union lines. When they heard there was a Union army in the area, they would go because they knew that there could be, they could find freedom there. They knew what the significance of the war was. And this is significant, right, because sometimes people think that enslaved people didn't know what was going on. But actually, yeah, they did. They had a sort of robust communication network that shared messages about what was happening uh, in the lead-up to the war, so that when the Union came to their areas, they understood what it meant. And so one of those first places of freedom 
um, was Fortress Monroe in Virginia, not too far from here, near Hampton, Hampton uh, Virginia in 1861, where we start to find that the uh, first freedoms were um, both this moment of a political crisis uh, for the nation and a humanitarian crisis, and it's all at the hands of enslaved people who were liberating themselves uh, into freedom. And the second place is Port Royal, South Carolina, which was viewed as a sort of rehearsal for Reconstruction, or this sort of first moment of um, sort of um, figuring out what the Reconstruction process would look like. So in Fortress Monroe, Virginia, um, in 1861, relatively early into the war, there were three enslaved men who ran, um, they ran uh, from the person who was enslaving them. He was a colonel in the Confederate Army. They ran to uh, Fortress Monroe, where the Union Army had set up camp. Uh, and they said that they didn't want to work anymore for the Confederate uh, uh, general, the Confederate colonel who was uh, their enslaver. And when they got there, Union General uh, Benjamin Butler had no plan exactly for what to do in a situation like that. What was he going to do with these men who were sort of liberating themselves from slavery and coming to him? And he thought pretty quickly about how to handle this situation and determined that these men should be treated like contraband, right? Contraband was an idea that he pulled from international law that said uh, basically that any goods that were being transported by any neutral parties could be, for the benefit of the enemy, could be confiscated as contraband. And so he decided that he would um, deem these men as contraband, but he also recognized rel relatively quickly that that idea of treating these human beings like property wasn't really, you know, sort of a, a workable idea. And he also realized there was a conflict of uh, sort of what was the union going to do with these people now that they deemed them property as well, but they didn't necessarily want to hold property, right? They didn't want to hold uh, formerly enslaved people as property. Um, but in this moment, it starts to lay out, right, the uh, landscape for by which uh, we, the union could start to think about uh, these self-emancipating men as uh, potential laborers for the war and eventually as soldiers. So that's what he did. He started it by putting these men to work in the, count in the union camps. Um, Good workaround for the time being. They had to figure out what that was going to mean uh, much later. But what ends up happening is not only are men coming to the to Fortress Monroe and other camps like it, but there are also women coming, there are children coming, there are elderly people coming. You can't easily, or they couldn't imagine how they could easily sort of absorb that labor into the war project. So then it really becomes a question, well, what do we do with these people, right? How do we sort of navigate? And he starts to work to create a work camp, essentially, and um, under the Union Guard and have these people work for the Union, um, have women doing laundry and cooking and things like that, uh, taking care of the elderly that they brought with them. He didn't see that he could sort of let the families, um, what, what else was he going to do with them? Um, so that starts to push the sort of political landscape of emancipation. And in Port Royal, South Carolina, we can see how these contraband camps started to push the social and cultural aspects of emancipation. Um, so there, too, you have a sort of union um, presence. You have uh, self-emancipating uh, enslaved people. Um, but you have the, in, the influence of uh, religious communities uh, that start to set up basically what, what would be equivalent of a sort of a humanitarian crisis response, right, of how do we sort of take care of, add resources to uh, the people who are emancipating themselves in South Carolina. 
Um, they envisioned, right, these uh, northern missionaries. They called themselves Gideon's Band. They were made up of missionaries from um, a, ver- a variety of denominations, including the Congregationalists and others. And they imagined themselves going down to help a destitute people uh, in need of resources. They imagined themselves going down to teach uh, in- formerly enslaved people how to become citizens, how to labor diligently, how to sort of uh, reproduce families that were sort of moral, and how to, and they even imagined themselves, you know, sort of creating a religious community. And they were shocked to find that there were already sort of robust networks already for education, that there was already robust networks for religion and churches, and people had already been sort of, you know, taking care of their own spiritual lives, um, that they were already pushing the landscape of what it meant to be free in terms of their families. Um, and so, um, but nevertheless, in this moment, they start to set up what, you know, can start to look like other elements of reconstruction uh, in terms of establishing um, the, um, establishing some of the, the landscape for what, um, how the government would interact with freed people, um, which later becomes the Freedmen's Bureau, or which is the Freedmen's Bureau at this point, um, and, and other elements. So in this first freedoms moment, you have these contraband camps that are created by the impetus of freed people running to the Union lines and the Union army having to sort of adapt, right, and sort of figure out politically what are we going to do, we're going to determine them to be contraband of war, uh, socially, culturally, what are we going to do, how are we going to sustain and support these communities, um, even if they initially, initially thought that they would be um, sort of leading these communities. But if we turn and look a little bit more um, deeply at this question of sort of what did it mean to be free from the perspective of self-emancipating folks, there's a pretty robust landscape of information sort of thinking about what did it mean? What did it mean in terms of labor, in terms of their mental, intellectual pursuits, uh, in terms of their personal goals for their families, for themselves, for their own bodies, uh, for their political goals, um, in terms of government, office holding, all those things, religious community, and even geography and movement. So what did it mean to be free? One of the key areas, so we already heard from Garrison Fraser that what the free people wanted was land, right? They wanted to be able to be independent, but land was an important part of it. And they also wanted control of their labor. They wanted to be able to get the the fruits of their own labor. Um, And one of the ways that we sort of get a picture of what it is that free people wanted was from the... um, now pretty, pretty famous letter of an formerly enslaved man named Jordan Anderson uh, writing to his former enslaver um, about his response, really, to his enslaver's request that he return to the plantation that he uh, left from and return to work. And one of the things that Jordan, uh, he basically um, very... Uh, memorably challenges the former enslaver about the ways that he had treated him, the violence that he had visited upon him and his family. Um, And then he says, basically, in Dayton, Ohio, where he is, he's able to work and get paid every week, that he's able to, um, his wife is able to sort of be respected and called by her her name as Mrs. Anderson. Uh, And he calculates, you know, how much money he would get in back pay if his former enslaver were to basically you know, pay him the hourly wage that he gets now for the years of service that he had done without pay, uh, if he would compensate Mandy for her labor as well. And then if we you know, subtract the amounts for any sort of care that was meted out for them while they were enslaved, he estimated that the amount owed to him would be about, owed to them would be about 
$11,680 and that in 19th century dollars, right? Um, so a pretty significant amount. He's like, and if you're willing to pay me that and guarantee some other things, then yeah, we'll come back, right? Um, so he's having this moment of like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, but letting the, his former enslaver know that this is, this is what the wages are. Like, I want to be compensated for my labor. I want to be sort of respected for the work that I do. Um, in another instance, um, in terms of labor and sort of controlling labor and, and getting the fruits of their labor, um, there was an enslaved woman uh, down in Georgia uh, in, in the 1860s, and she was um, sort of known for and disciplined a few times for uh, going and putting on her the enslaved woman's enslaving woman's um, uh, perfume and sort of going into the vanity and sort of you know you know putting on a little bit of makeup and you know look at herself in the mirror you know take a side profile or whatever and so she's known for doing this and was disciplined for it a few times um, but to her that's what freedom was going to mean the ability to do that and not be you know sort of policed in that way. She might have responded uh, after emancipation the same way another enslaved woman did um, when she was sort of um, um, disciplined uh, for not responding appropriately or quickly enough. She said answering bells is played out. Like, that's over. That, day, that time is over. So there's a sense of, like, I'm, I'm going to control my labor uh, and I'm, I'm going to sort of push back against um, those uh, systems of sort of disciplining black labor that have been extant at the time. Some people wanted not to labor at all, right? They didn't want to have to work for anybody. They didn't want anybody to control their labor, right? Uh, and one of the ways that it manifested itself um, is not necessarily not to labor, but to sort of control the labor of people in the family, whether it would be children or wives who were now um, wanted to stay at home or wanted to be kept at home, that kind of a thing. So this idea of being cho- choosing not to labor was another choice, right, that free people wanted in terms of their labor. Or to labor for themselves, right? Um, and to be able to uh, gain the fruits of their labor from the plows of their own hands and the, uh, what they were able to produce for themselves. And that, ma- that manifested itself um, because, as Garrison Fraser pointed out, and as we know, uh, ens- uh, enslaved people were liberated without land. So that meant that they had to um, secure land from their, um, secure land from uh, the landowners and uh, engage in sharecropping, where they would a- sort of gain a portion of the crop um, um, and, and sort of profit from that, or from having crop liens, um, where if they own their own land, right, they would um, sort of uh, grow their own crops and then have a portion of that crop that they would have to give to the, the landowner or to the sort of person who was assisting them. Um, but all of this was um, not on the best terms for the formerly enslaved people, right? Um, and um, Harriet Jacobs, in the letter that we read today, for today, pointed this out, right, when she says the freedmen, but, but with but few exceptions, were cheated out of the crop of their cotton. And she's writing, you know, a little bit later, uh, 1867, but that she's indicating that there is a system where people are sort of being, um, you know, sort of manipulated in the process and not getting their, uh, their, their full, um, full amounts. And then lastly, they wanted land, and they had good reason, right, to want it and to believe that they would get it because when um, General Sherman, um, I think as part of the, the conversation that he was having with the, um, the, the ministers in Savannah, um, was thinking about what to do with all of these free people who were liberating themselves and following the Union, Union Army. I mean, it was actually, you know, 
sort of not creating a drag, but like having all these people sort of following behind because they realized the meaning of the Union Army's presence and that it could liberate them um, was pulling so many people to the Union Army. He wanted to know what to do with them. And so he figured that he could sort of take a, a swatch of land, um, basically on the sort of eastern seaboard of Georgia and South Carolina, and promise to sort of uh, distribute some of that land to the, free, to the self-emancipating folks and free people to uh, labor on for themselves and take care of themselves because that's what would have been needed in a very agricultural society at the time. Um, <clears throat> and that's what people did. He apportioned some land. They moved to these, um, these uh, basically, you could call them like homesteads, um, and labored there. But ultimately, um, that wasn't able to be fulfilled, and we'll talk about that some more uh, at a later point in terms of the, um, the limitations of the Freedmen's Bureau in distributing land. But in any case, ultimately what they wanted, control of their own labor, um, respect for their labor, land on which to, to work and to take care of themselves and their families. Well, what did it mean to be free in terms of sort of mental and intellectual processes? This was one of the areas where um, the pursuit of literacy was robust. It was incredibly robust. Um, Booker T. Washington described it as being like a whole nation trying to go to school, right? So imagine everybody trying to get into the schoolhouse to get uh, education and to learn to read, to learn math, to learn all the elements of what education afforded. And so um, some of what uh, emerges during this time are missionary and common schools. So in places like Port Royal, a lot of the missionaries go and set up schools, but they also find there are already schools there. Um, so people like uh, Mary Peak, who's pictured here uh, up in the corner, uh, is a free black woman in Hampton who had already been running a free, a, school, a free school in Hampton for free black folks um, before the war. So there's already sort of this infrastructure for education of a sort, right, among free black folks to educate other black folks. Um, and so that just sort of continues on during the period of emancipation and, and on, right, that there's already these sort of places where um, people are sort of uh, creating schools. And then you have people like Charlotte Fortin and Harriet Jacobs who go to the South and help uh, establish schools and help teach in the schools. Um, Charlotte Fortin, <coughs> excuse me, um, you will um, remember she's the daughter of um, James Fortin, I'm oh, sorry, granddaughter of James Fortin, who was... Um, fought in the American Revolution um, from Philadelphia. Uh, she goes down as part of Gideon's band in South Carolina and writes of her experiences with the free children and she is shocked at the, you know, at the exuberant energy students bring to the classroom space, at the capacity that they have. And she's shocked because the, the discourse, right, about enslaved people had been that they were not capable of learning, right, that they are not willing to learn, that they had to be forced to work and forced to learn, all these kinds of things. And what she finds is that the kids are actually really desiring to learn. They catch on really quick. And she writes about how, you know, it's really a discredit to the people who have all the resources and have opportunity and then look down upon the enslaved people and the formerly enslaved people for their lack of education when the system was built to keep them uneducated, not their sort of lack of independent will, right? Um, so she's writing and, and sort of really uh, reflecting that there's a, a robust uh, engagement with education going on uh, in these areas. 
So even so, so every turn you sort of find these moments where the expectations of what enslaved people wanted or what they were doing was sort of being upturned and challenged, and this is one of those places. Um, and so in this way, you have these teachers and black administrators of schools is something else that free people wanted, right? They wanted to have their schools led by people who looked like them, people who understood what their experiences were and who would not look down upon them, who wouldn't come with these sort of pre-con- preconceived notions about their capacity, um, but instead would sort of, you know, reflect what their experience was, which is that they knew that they wanted education, they knew that they wanted these resources, and that they were capable of doing the kind of work. Um, and so they um, sought that. And that led to the sort of formation of historically black colleges and universities that were uh, sort of rooted in this moment of emancipation. Um, and the whole sort of language around education, though, was also very fraught, right, about what kind of education did free people need. Um, and so you found that the co- colleges were broken into these two models, um, which, you know, I would say it's a false dichotomy in, in a few ways about thinking about the, the values of industrial education, of teaching people how to labor with their hands versus teaching people the liberal arts, right, the romance languages and geography and, you know, all, the, all those elements. Um, and they also had the religious institutions like Richmond Theological Institute, which becomes Virginia Union, which is right down the street from us, um, and... Um, Places like the Branch Theological Seminary down in Petersburg, uh, which becomes the Bishop Payne Divinity School. So there are all these places where uh, formerly enslaved people, self-emancipating people are being educated. Um, And part of the mission of these schools um, can be encapsulated in this idea of educating heads, hands, and hearts. What what does that call to mind when you think about educating the head, hands, and heart? What are they trying to do? I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Trying to get you involved, um, but not just like sitting at a desk, maybe like going out to the community and um, getting hands on or something, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, so education can be getting people involved, right? Getting them involved in the community. What else? Um, John? Teaching them the necessary, I mean, the teaching them the tools, what they're going to need in the, uh, in the professional world, I would say. Okay, in the professional world. Um, so it might be teaching them what they need in the professional world. Anybody else? What educating heads, hand, and heart might mean? Really? Is it kind of like the each one teach one um, philosophy where, like, you educate people and then they use their skills to go on and educate other people? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it could be like an each one teach one, using what you learn to teach other people. Um, so it was a little bit of all those things, right, in terms of educating the head, right? So having something in their minds that they could do, you know, so you need to know something about math and geography and history and all these things, educating the hands, right, for labor, right, so that you know how to do things in the world that need doing, right? You know how to take care of your house. You know how to build a building. You know how to make a printing press and make a newspaper. You have real practical skills that you can do something with. And educating the heart, right? Educating folks for service, for thinking about the community engagement, for being involved with the people around them. So it's a multi-layered process of education. It's all these things, not just not either or. It's not industrial or liberal education. It's a holistic form of education that they sought. And they viewed it as manufacturing levers, right? The education was a process of manufacturing levers. A lever, something you might use to lift something up, right? So education was a process of 
manufacturing levers, people who were going to work in the community, help the community to evolve. And again, it was a very communal sense of what education was for. It wasn't like, you know, for the job you want to have down the road, right? Um, but for what you can do to help other people, right? To help the community. <laughs> and so in all those ways, it sort of disrupted this false dichotomy of liberal versus industrial education. I'll also say that it was disrupted in the ways that the people who ran the schools um, sort of had to negotiate, right? Because sometimes they had to deal with funding issues of who was going to give them money if they were doing industrial education. They weren't being supported for liberal education, so they had to kind of figure out how to tell a story that was going to appease the funders but also do this kind of holistic education that they had in mind. But what it meant to be free was... Pursuing literacy, pursuing education from people who were uh, supportive of what uh, their admission was, and then um, having education that could help them um, and help the community at large. What did it mean to be free? It was personal. It was a personal freedom. It had to do with what, what's my name, right? What am I calling myself? They changed their names. Um, we saw that with Harriet Tubman, right, who went from Araminta Ross to calling herself Harriet right? Um, they changed their names. They, ch- they took off the, the names of their enslavers and chose new names, so not names like Freeman, right? Recognizing their new status. Um, changed first names. They didn't want to be called something. They changed it to something they did want to be called. So they changed their names. They changed their names to reflect their, new, their family groupings and who they were akin uh, to and how they wanted to reflect their connections to their family members and ancestors and things like that. They also sought security of the body um, against violence. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because um, security of the body against violence, against policing that was happening in the communities, right? So um, in the immediate sort of aftermath of emancipation, um, there were riots. Um, so Memphis has a riot um, of three days um, where the assailants were policemen and small business owners and uh, killed about 48 black people and 78, 70 to 80 more were injured, and black women were raped because of their connections to soldiers. Um, and this is in part sort of a reflection of how Southern society and Southern communities were processing the presence of black men in uniform uh, in the South, right, and how they were reflecting um, the, the, the complete uh, transformation of what slave society had been. So there's this riot um, where these people are killed. But one of the things and one of the ways that uh, free people respond to this um, is by sort of pushing back against this culture of dissemblance. It's an idea that was put forth by um, a historian called, uh, named Darlene Clark Hine, right, where uh, women, black women in particular, would not talk about certain aspects of their lives, particularly around sexuality, because it had been so... Um, because um, their bodies and their sexuality had been so debased, right? And so rather than talk about it publicly, they would not talk about it, right, so that they wouldn't be reflected upon in that way. Um, but in this instance, black women testified to congressional committees, right? And we have some, some testimonies going on now, so you, get a, you may have a sense of what it means to, you know, testify in front of a big body of people um, who, you know, may or may not be supporting the story you're trying to tell. Um, and... They told their stories to these, commi- these committees, right? They wanted their stories to be told. They wanted to have justice for what they experienced. Um, and so they have this uh, culture of testimony as well that starts to develop of telling stories and telling about what happened so that um, they could pursue the personal freedoms of protection for their bodies, protection for their families and themselves, uh, and then also sort of recognizing themselves and their own names and sort of who they want to be reflected upon as.
<clears throat> what did it mean to be free? So it meant familiar free, familial freedom. It meant that having their marriages recognized by the federal government, there were instances of mass weddings. Um, so we had talked earlier in the semester about you know, how families were used as um, tools to discipline and to um, uh, disrupt the lives of enslaved people. Well, in emancipation, it was like, oh, we can have our, our, our union solemnized. We can have them formally recognized by the government. So they pursued that. And what's interesting here is that um, they pursued mass weddings, they pursued weddings um, and recognition, although this wasn't always the only form of forming family, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, but they also had these ideas well in advance of the missionaries showing up. There's a good example of a woman um, in South Carolina who basically petitions to get her husband's um, pay. He was a soldier in the Army. And it's 1861, and she is, you know, petitioning to get recognition um, as his wife so that she can uh, also claim his pay so that he, she can support the family. This is before the federal government is recognizing families and marriage and those relationships. So we can take from that that enslaved people had their own ideas about what it meant to be responsible to one another in these sort of covenant relationships. And they lived it out in emancipation. They had their, their, their marriages um, recognized by the federal government. Um, reconnecting with family was a pride, like a key, key, key element of what it meant to be free. Some people traveled hundreds of miles to try to find family members, to reconnect with family members. Um, they placed ads in newspapers to find their people. Um, and, they and, and they placed ads in these newspapers for decades. Uh, up until the turn of the 20th century, people were still placing ads in newspapers like the Christian Recorder and others saying, you know, I am so-and-so. I last saw my wife, husband, daughter, son, cousin, auntie, here, they were owned by so-and-so. Um, last place I knew they went to was this. They were providing all the information they could in these ads to try to reconnect their families um, and did this, again, for decades, up until the, uh, up until the turn of the 20th century to f try and find their uh, family members. But they also suffered the ravages of time and distance, and not every story meant that people were able to reconnect or that their stories were read and they were able to find their people. Um, they also had um, extended kinship networks that they wanted to remain and strengthen. So we find instances of people, um, grand grandparents trying to take care of their grandchildren, um, you know, networks of people who had been living together but not necessarily married or, you know, um, biological families, but trying to sort of gain control and, and, and uh, support of children and other people. So they had these extended kinship networks. And they also had single female-headed households, right? They had places where women were taking care of their children. Uh, and this presented a particular challenge uh, for uh, free women um, because the federal um, government didn't always sort of recognize women as heads of household, right? And so they had to sort of navigate those elements. Um, but they sometimes wanted that. And they used court-mediated resolutions to deal with any challenges that they had in their families. And that happened, too. Right? People wanted divorces. They wanted to be separated from people. And so they wanted to access those resources to kind of organize their families as they saw fit. So it was a really robust, again, a really robust picture of what freedom meant in terms of family. Reconnecting, but it could also mean reconfiguring, right? What did it mean to be free? 
It was political freedom that we can see through places like the National Freedmen Conventions, um, which we had talked about in sort of antebellum period. Remember, they had started around the time of the um, colonization and immigration debates in the 1830s. Um, these were freedmen, free, free com- freedmen conventions in the 1830s, but by at the post-emancipation period, they're still having these meetings, right, talking about what it means to be free, what it is that they're seeking. And a lot of times they talked about voting, serving on juries, holding political offices. Um, these were spaces where they started to, crack, start to sort of craft out what freedom could mean. And they talked about um, constitutional conventions and participating in them. Um, because one of the things that happened as a result of the Civil War and as resolution was a Reconstruction Act um, that broke the South into military districts and made it so that the states had to rewrite their constitutions to reflect the end of slavery and to um, grant suffrage to uh, freedmen. Um, And in these conventions, they held office. Um, Black men were elected to hold office in these conventions. In some places, they were majorities of the convention, like in Louisiana and South Carolina. Uh, in places like Virginia, they weren't a majority, but they did participate actively in the conversations about emancipation. Um, and they um, focused on uh, education, race relations, um, but they also talked about you know, what it was that free people wanted that didn't necessarily co- coincide with the sort of legislative landscape of emancipation. I'm sorry, a legislative landscape of voting and suffrage. Um, And they also talked about um, issues around gender and sexuality, right? And so they talked about marriage and interracial marriage, but many of them articulated an idea of trying to protect uh, black women, right, from being violated in in, uh, by being raped um, or by just sort of not having control of their bodies or being viewed in uh, violent ways. And so um, what it meant to be free was to participate in the political landscape uh, and to shape what the definition of rights would be. What it meant to be free was religious. Um, it meant exodus. It meant this idea of uh, sort of having uh, independent freedom, but it also meant um, this moment of um, liberation that God brought about, right? So for, for black folks who were Christian at this time, they believed that this was a moment of God acting on their behalf to liberate them from enslavement. Um, so, <clears throat> which is not to say that they sort of were sort of passively waiting for freedom, but they understood that God was sort of acting in their lives to bring about a transformation. Um, and that led um, actually to a, a, a surge of black folks being uh, converted to Christianity and the formation of independent churches. So we talked earlier about how even with the Second uh, Great Awakening, there was not sort of this large-scale um, conversion experience among enslaved people. But by, um, certainly by the time of emancipation, um, those numbers really start to climb, right, in independent churches. And you find that there are like hundreds of churches created uh, during the period of emancipation, the sort of first five to ten years after emancipation. Uh, and a lot of them were ur- rural churches. Um, and so they create these independent churches. They create independent associations. They create independent denominations. Um, so we know in the antebellum period there's an uh, AME church, 
But in the uh, South, you have the Zion Union Apostolic Church, which is the first independent Southern, um, uh, one of the first independent Southern uh, denominations. Yep. Precious. Do you think or do you know if people converted to Christianity because they were free? Or? Mm-hmm. Or what? Because, what? because um, before the, they were emancipated, um, you said there, weren't, there wasn't a large amount of slaves who were Christian. Um, I was just asking, like, did, like, do you think mm-hmm. that because they were free, they saw that as, like, okay, well, Someone had to do it, and then they converted to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I, I, I don't know that they necessarily saw it, or I haven't seen sort of documentation, I'm saying, but because God sort of liberated us, um, you know, liberated us, we're going to convert. But I definitely think that it was a um, certainly a good representation, right, of what faith could do, right, so people could convert for that reason. But I also think it was, in some ways, maybe a, um, a more practical element of, people being able to move about and make choices of their own about where to worship, who to worship with, how to worship, right? Uh, some people had not been catechized or in, in religious community at all, right? So um, the work of the independent associations to actually carry out mission work among uh, black folks is also probably a significant component of that. Because that's one of the things that the independent association said. It was like, we are the people best qualified to help you know, the uh, free people, who better than us? We know we're black people ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, and we know what people, what, what black people need, so we should be able to sort of carry out this work, and they do that. Um, so I think all of those elements, both sort of realizing that this, could, this is a moment of sort of God acting and, and people sort of seeing that, um, people having the opportunity to choose for themselves, and also responding to the work of the conventions and churches. Does that help? Okay. Um, so yeah, so there's this you know sort of moment of the of, of what it means to be free is independent religious worship, um, and it also has implications for women's leadership and power, right? So something that we see in uh, you saw in one of the readings today, sort of thinking about how women were actually playing key roles uh, in forming religious communities, so much so that uh, some of the uh, planters were complaining about one of the women and what she was uh, the worship services she was holding. Um, so there were women sort of playing important roles in religious community. Um, and that goes through some changes over the, over the period of emancipation. But in the immediate emancipation, you have women playing key roles in sort of establishing religious community. We see that in a place like Petersburg, Virginia, um, with the um, St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, uh, which is one of the first black Episcopal churches uh, in Virginia, and is founded in part by a formerly enslaved black woman from North Carolina, Carrie Bragg. Um, and she works with one of the ministers there uh, in Petersburg to, to start this church for uh, formerly enslaved black folks at, called St. Stephen's. Uh, so women are playing an important role in the religious landscape of freedom uh, as well. And we have Nanny Helen Burroughs there uh, to reflect the work of the, women's, uh, the National uh, Women's Convention of the Baptist Church, um, which ultimately emerges at the end of the 19th century. And then lastly, sort of thinking of this question of what it meant to be free, is it meant geography and movement, right? Um, Harriet Jacobs said, there is no more need of hiding places to conceal slave mothers, right? She's referring to her own experience, hiding in her grandmother's attic in that small space, small crawl space, um, where she could barely stand um, 
There's no more need for that, right? Now, free people can go where they want, right? And many do. Uh, many migrate to cities uh, in search of their family members, in search of just freedom, to be able to move their bodies and go where they please. Some of them stayed on the plantations where they had labored as enslaved people. Some of them were waiting it out and sort of figuring out what, you know, what, what did it really mean, this transformation to emancipation. They were sort of waiting to see what would happen. And then some of them started to move from the plantations. And for other folks, oh, sorry, Shanice. What did emancipation or freedom mean to the black individuals who were, I guess, homosexual? Like seeing how, of course, in the Bible, it's the same, whatever. Um, how do they, like, like, where are they represented in history where it's not, you know, the 1900s where it's more acceptable? Mm-hmm. Um, that's such a good question about sort of how were... Uh, same-gender loving people reflected in the landscape of emancipation. And I think that's an area of research. We talked about sort of um, the sort of issues around um, um, forced mating among enslaved men. This is another one of those areas that is sort of at the leading edge of scholarship where people are now doing research to uncover the lives of same-gender loving folks in slavery, right? So there's a whole project called, called Queering, it's the Queering Slavery Working Group. Um, and a few of the scholars there are working on sort of projects to uncover these stories. Um, so I think that's a, a narrative that's still unfolding. But I also think, just in terms of the broader landscape of rights and responsibilities, um, it, the, the, the landscape of freedom didn't sort of allow for um, family structures to be um, organized around same gender loving people. That said, there were lots of family structures that differed from that sort of, uh, sort of Victorian model of, you know, a heteronormative Victorian model of a father and a mother and, you know, some, their, their biological children. Free people had a myriad of structures of family because the institution of slavery produced that in ways, right? That they sometimes had, you know, uh, units of women, right, and children who lived together and who formed community. They sometimes had, you know, single mother, single uh, parent households, and that could be a father and children or mother and children, right? Um, so there were all these different ways of conforming, of forming family, which is one of the ways we can start to see that. Um, marriage, again, was an institution that, you know, had its sort of uh, Christian sort of normative ideals about men and women, and that's kind of how it was structured. Um, but then even within that framework, free people were sort of disrupting what it meant to be families, right, and be married. They had all kinds of ways of partnering, from sweethearting, so you have a partner today who's not your partner tomorrow, or, you know, trying out relationships, and they, there was a myriad of ways. So I think there's a lot of places that we can start to look for what that experience um, may have been and try to uncover if we read carefully and thoughtfully and ask that question. Um, and I think that, like I said, is a, is a the, the, the frontier. So thank you for the question. Um, but yeah, that's the frontier uh, of the research, I'll say. Um, and then lastly, so return migration. They're returning to the places of enslavement as free people. And that's what we get a sense of from Harriet Jacobs' letter. Right? She's writing to Edna Dow Cheney in 1867 saying, you know, I'm sitting here at Edenton you know, in my grandmother's house reflecting on what it meant to be free, what it, what it means to be free. She's writing about 
you know, returning to the place where her family was buried. There were some people who, you know, sort of fled and were able to emancipate themselves into freedom and who then came back um, to the places where their family were buried, families were buried, right? So the places where they found their roots. Um, and in a lot of ways, this return to the places of emancipation, the places of enslavement, was also the way that they helped to make freedom meaningful and help it to stay, stay was by returning to those places as freed people to shape the landscape of freedom. Um, and so the meaning of freedom, as you can see, was um, robust, right? And enslaved people and freed people had a very um, robust sense of what it meant to be free and a lot of different ways of constructing it. Um, but they laid the foundations for making that freedom meaningful, right? They laid the foundations in the conversations that they had and the exchange between Jordan Anderson and his uh, former enslaver. Uh, they laid the foundations in their letters about the schools and in their pursuit of schools and the formation of schools. They laid the foundations for making freedom meaningful in so many ways um, through their activities and through their exchanges with um, various folks around that process. And in this moment, we can say that emancipation marked a new cultural moment, religiously, socially, culturally, that there were things that um, were imaginable at this moment that uh, had been, you know, um, complicated in the uh, antebellum period before the war. Um, and so with freedom, with this idea of freedom, um, free people were able to go forward and start to create a new engagement with um, the institutions of this country in such a way that it started to challenge some of those frameworks um, and try to sort of reconfigure them, which would be the next set of questions to consider. It's like, how did they make... So now we know that what freedom meant. How did they make that freedom meaningful, right? Uh, and so that will be the next question to take up in our next session. But I'll leave it there for today. Um, unless there are questions, I can take questions if there are any lingering questions. Now I'll leave it there for today. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.